All right, good morning, EBC. Let's give them a big round of applause. Great seeing all of you. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Man, I was hoping you were going to do Footloose any minute, man. Kenny Loggins. Yeah, that would have been awesome. So great to see you guys. Uh, wow, what a, an amazing uh, start to a great day of worship here at EBC. Got a full house, expecting the next service to be the same. And uh, what does that say about our summer? Just how full it is every week is a record week. And uh, I want you to know we do have plans that are in the, in the makings for expanding and growing even more as we continue to reach out in our community. It's just incredible to see all of you here in the summer months. What does that tell us our fall is going to be like, right? It's going to be a big fall. And so we'll be making plans to, uh, to be able to make a little more room in here. But we're glad you're here. I want to open with a word of prayer. I can't think of a more appropriate song for them to sing today as we continue in this book of Daniel. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the reminders of, in every song these guys sang for us today, and we sang along with them, the reminders of the gospel truth, Lord, the reminders that you came for sinners, you died for sinners, you were buried, you were raised from the dead. And Lord, I thank you that that's not the end of the story, that scripture also teaches us this as we continue to look at this. You are also coming back for your church. And Lord, you're going to set all things straight and make all things new. And we today are eager to learn from your word. So I pray that you would be our teacher today. God, again, thank you for the great music that we've celebrated today as we celebrate you. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. And I thank you for the, for the folks who are here this morning, Lord. We want to experience your presence here today. And so, Lord Jesus, we welcome you here. We welcome your Holy Spirit as our teacher. Teach us from your word. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Again, what an appropriate song. As we've been in this book of Daniel, one of the things that we've learned about Daniel is that over 50% in this series, Depth in the Difficult World, over 50% of the book of Daniel deals with things that we call eschatology. And again, last week, I love that someone said, I'd never heard of that word before. And it's my responsibility to begin to teach us about what eschatology is and to begin to teach us about uh, issues of prophecy, okay? And, uh, and I've not done a ton of teaching on that, but I love teaching on this because Scripture is so clear that it's something that we as believers, we need to understand. And what eschatology is, if you haven't been here for a while, or maybe you don't know what that is, what it is, it's the study of last things, it's understanding what the Scripture says about what happens in those last days. What does that mean for believers? What does that mean for those who are unbelievers? And how should that affect the way that you and I live our lives today? And so we've been looking in Daniel, and what we know about Daniel is that over, the, over 50% of this book, this Old Testament book, deals with those issues of last things. And it deals with matters of prophecy. It's incredible to think of this. And what I loved about last week as we talked about the return of Jesus Christ, I got pretty excited last week. A lot of you got pretty excited last week because here's what we're reminded of. Depth in a Difficult World is the title of this series. When it seems like our world, as we talked about that tribulation time that is coming, when it seems like our world is spinning out of control, when it seems like uh, that, that, it's, uh, that the world's history is at its worst, what do we discover? We discover this, that Jesus Christ is in control, Right? Jesus wins. I mean, last week as we started saying that, many of you broke into applause last week because you were encouraged by that. You're reminded that Jesus wins. If you're a believer, let this encourage you today, you're on the winning team, amen? You're on a stacked team. 
Golden State Warriors got nothing on us, man. You're on a stacked team. The only player that really matters is Jesus. And that's what we've been learning about is that Jesus is in control. And if Jesus, we learned last week, if he can handle the terrible tribulation that we learned will come one day, whether we're here for it or not, I do not know. Whether it happens in our lifetime, I can't tell you that, and I'll never presume to do that. But one thing we are reminded of is that Jesus is in control. God is in control. He's in control. And if he can handle that terrible tribulation, he can handle whatever is going on in your life right now. Any tribulation you're dealing with now, God has that under control. Now, if you're new here, or if this is your first Sunday and you haven't been here for this series at all, uh, you need to know that this is, one, this is a different kind of Sunday, and we've loved having uh, my brother's keeper come and lead. They're incredible. I love those guys. Don't you love them? I love them. Not only are they great musicians, they are so humble, and they are, they are the real deal. And I love having them here. That's why we have them back over and over again. But also, it's a little bit different because, again, we're talking about uh, what I said was eschatology, what's, what, what we learn about these last things. And, 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 and here's the deal. You could walk in kind of cold on this, and you may think, what in the world is that preacher talking about? Man, I've never heard some of those things. And in some cases, if you don't understand this, uh, for some people, it makes them fearful. It makes them a little bit afraid when you start talking about end times or you start talking about last things. And you'll never experience that from me in the, in the sense of me trying to scare people into making a decision to follow Jesus Christ. All I want to do is tell you what the Bible says, and then I let the Holy Spirit convict you and speak to your heart and lead you to live your life and to, to draw closer to Jesus Christ. Now, you, do, you need to know this, okay? In a couple of weeks, we're going to start a new series in the book of Colossians. I'm really excited about this series. And we're going we're gonna to talk about how Jesus Christ is greater than everything that we're dealing with in our lives. So if you're going through a hardship in your life, we're going to dig into the book of Colossians and you will be greatly encouraged by that scripture. Now, if you're new, one thing you will learn about EBC is we teach the Bible here. You're going you're gonna to learn the Bible because I'm going to bring the Bible to you and our other pastors will bring the scripture to you. Uh, our student pastor will bring it to our students. It happens in our children's ministry. If you want to learn the Bible, you found a good church where we can share with you what scripture says about certain things. Now, Daniel, just a little review, was a teenager whenever he was exiled and taken as a prisoner of war out of Israel all the way to Babylon. And he was, he was probably around 12, 13 years old whenever this happened. Happened. For years, the nation of Israel had been warned through prophets of God saying that they needed to repent and turn back to God, but they wouldn't do that. And so God allowed Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, to come in and they devastated and ransacked Jerusalem and they took these, uh, a number of these Jews back with them to Babylon as was a part of their military strategy. And so what we've learned is that the first half of Daniel deals with a lot of these narrative stories of how Daniel was able to not only survive in Babylon, but we see that God blessed Daniel because of his faithfulness. He, he thrived while he was in Babylon. We've learned that we, in essence, are living in, in a sort of Babylonian experience today because we know this, that this is not our home. Where we live as believers, this is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. And so we are strangers in a strange land as we follow Jesus Christ. And I know that many of you are feeling that more and more as our culture changes, right? It seems like our culture draws further and further away from God. But this shouldn't surprise us. 
Scripture tells us that this is going to happen before the return of Jesus Christ, okay? So as you get into the second half of Daniel, it starts getting into some strange things. There's some terminology that gets used. We've been talking about horns, right? Horns that coming out of an animal. Remember, those just mean authoritative rulers or kings. We've, we've talked in, metaphorically, and Daniel was speaking vi- about these visions that he had. He talks about precious metals and this vision that, that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had in this dream. He talks about animals. There's, there's lions and there's tigers and there's bears. Okay, no, there's not tigers though, okay? But there are leopards. And there's one that's a terrible beast. And then out of the terrible, out of that, those 10 horns that are going to emerge, those 10 leaders that is yet to happen, there's going to be a little horn that will emerge out of that. And again, if you're coming in new, you're going, what in the world is he talking about? What is all of this that he's talking about? Well, what we learned was that there was this one who is Antichrist, named Antichrist, who will emerge and come out of this 10-nation confederation at some point. We don't know when that's going to happen, but what we also learned, he, he, will, he will come and he will be, as we learned last week, as Scripture teaches about him and, and, and tells us about him, it will be in the middle of what is called a terrible time of tribulation. A time of tribulation. The world will seem like it's spinning out of control. And again, we learn this because Daniel tells us that there's this stone that comes out of the heavens and it comes and it obliterates the kingdoms of men. And that stone is, who is that church? It's Jesus Christ and his return where he comes and he sets up his final kingdom. And all of this is in the book of Daniel. This is an Old Testament book. And it's just incredible. And again, if you, if you don't know about these things, here's what I want to say, and you're going to see as we kind of get into this in the next few moments, I don't want this to freak you out. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have placed your faith in him, this ought to begin to excite you. It ought to begin to do something within your heart to bring encouragement to you. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm not trying to scare you with this today, but instead what I'm trying to do is to compel you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, here's what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 17. I want you to see that Jesus in his first coming did not come to judge. He came to save. Look at what it says in John 3, 17. And you know what John 3, 16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus says this. God sent his son into the world not to what? Judge the world. That's the first coming of Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But he came to save the world through him. And look at what verse 18 says. There is no judgment against anyone who, what does it say, church? believes in him. So he didn't come to judge in the first coming. This is speaking of his first coming where Jesus is talking about this. We right now are in this age of grace. This is an opportunity to place your faith in Christ by grace. He saves us by grace and you, we are saved by faith in Christ alone. He didn't come to judge in the first coming, but we all need to understand something very clearly. Jesus didn't come to judge in the first coming, but in his second coming, he is coming as a judge. And we need to to know this, and that's not to scare you, but it's it's to give us a sober reminder of the fact that God is the judge, and he is coming to judge in his second coming, which would say to us that if you haven't placed your faith in Christ yet, now is the time to do that. Don't delay another day. 
Place your faith in Jesus. He came because he loves you and he wants you to be with him throughout all eternity. And this is all so powerful in the book of Daniel because we're reminded we're given so much of this information to us about what the last days will look like. And it's all, much of it comes through the book of Daniel. And there are other great prophetic books as well. We are told in the book of Daniel, one of the weeks, we were given a timeline because there is, in essence, Daniel has this vision in in, uh, Daniel chapter 7. And we're given a timeline, so to speak, of human history. And you've got to know, and we learned where we are. We're between that terrible beast and that 10-nation confederation. We're somewhere in between there. You have to know where you are so that you can adequately know where you're going. And when you you know where you are and you know where you're going, that removes fear. When you understand where you are in relationship to Christ, and Daniel shows us this, if you'll look at the end of that, there is an imminent return of Jesus Christ. Now between that tin horn and that coronation of King Jesus, there is what is called a terrible tribulation. And in the middle of that, in the three and a, in, in, there is an antichrist that emerges, but in that middle of that three and a half years, or in that seven years, at three and a half years, the antichrist will really emerge on the scene at that point. And he will be wanted by people who are in this world at that time. And again, just the book of Daniel gives us these kinds of insights and these kinds of reminders. Now, not only is the Old Testament something that speaks of the return of Christ, but in the New Testament, you need to understand it's the overarching theme of the entirety of the New Testament. It is a part of the gospel. Sometimes when we talk about the gospel, we talk about sinners who are saved. Jesus died and was resurrected. But you need to understand that there's also a part of the gospel that says that he's also returning for his church. As he ascended to heaven, so will he return. That is also a part of that gospel. Jesus mentioned the return of Christ. Daniel mentions the return of Christ. Paul does. Peter does. John. Mark does. Isaiah in the Old Testament does. Jeremiah does. David does. What I'm trying to tell you is that it is a theme that is laced throughout all of Scripture. Which means this, church, we should not neglect in teaching about it. You need to know about this. You need to understand about it. It isn't some obscure church doctrine that some fringe preacher is coming up with. It is all throughout the scriptures. It is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament alone. It is mentioned eight times more. The return of Christ is mentioned eight times more than the first coming of Christ. What do we do? We put a lot of emphasis on the first coming of Christ, which is okay. But you need to understand that the return of Jesus, the second coming, is mentioned eight times more. All this to be said, it is warranted that we talk about this. It's important that as your pastor that I am teaching this and that you're understanding this and that it shouldn't bring fear to you, but it should bring peace and it should cause you to live sober-minded as a believer. I love what Paul says to Titus. We'll look in Daniel in a second. We'll also look in 1 Thessalonians. But Paul writes to Titus to a group of believers, and I want you to hear the balanced approach that they have whenever it comes to studying the kind of thing we're calling last things or eschatology. Here's what it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God, that's been through Jesus Christ, has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. We're in this age of grace right now, right? But look at what it says. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. 
We should live in this evil world with, what does it say, church? Wisdom. We live righteousness with righteousness and with devotion to God. So he's not saying live in this bubble away. You are to engage the world. We are to live fully engaged in our culture. We are in our culture. We are not of our culture. But listen what he says. As you are in the culture, you're also to have a high an eye towards the sky and knowing that Jesus Christ could return at any moment for his church. He says this, we should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God while we look forward with, what is the word? Hope. While we look forward with hope, we look forward with hope. The return of Christ should be a hopeful thing for us as believers as we live. While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. Verse 14, he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. So that's for our present life at this very moment. We live engaged in our culture to be freed from sin, to cleanse us, to make us his very own people, totally totally committed to doing good deeds while we're in this culture in which we're living. And then listen to what he says, which again instructs me as a pastor on what I should be doing. You must teach these things and encourage believers. Teach these things and encourage believers to do these things. We're to live with wisdom. We're to live righteously. We're to turn from, from godless deeds. We're to turn to Christ, doing good works in this culture. But what is the other part of this? With an anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. And I am not doing you a justice if I'm not teaching you that. I'm not teaching you the full counsel of God if I'm not bringing this to you. So if you're taking some notes, I want you to see there's a balanced approach whenever you study these last things. You engage in the culture, you're not so obsessed on the return of Christ that you miss engaging the culture. But also you can't be so obsessed in the culture and what you're living in right now that you neglect anticipating the return of Christ. Do you see that? There's got to be a balanced approach. So if you're taking some notes, you say, how in the world is this even applicable for me today, Bart, in the 21st century? If you're a believer, here's what you should write down. The return of Christ is the believer's blessed hope. That is what it's called. It's the blessed hope. It provides an anchor of hope for you in the midst of our difficult times in which we live. Now, this kind of hope is not a wishful thinking, like I hope this happens, maybe it will. This is an assurance of you knowing that something that is going to transpire, that it will take place, and you are anticipating that it will happen. So it applies for you, because here's the thing. Just as we acknowledged last week that every one of us is going through something difficult. I asked that last week, and many of you raised your hands. And you said, Bart, I'm going through something really hard. I shared with you a few weeks ago that I have a struggle that I battle with from time to time. And man, it's a thorn in my flesh. Some of you have that same kind of thorn in your flesh. But when you study the return of Christ, what we are reminded of, church, is that God is sovereign. He's in control. And one day, these trials of our lives will be over. Amen? They will be no more. And when Jesus comes, he will set everything up just as he designed it to be from the beginning. 
Now, I want to show you for a second how Daniel was struggling with some of these things. Because I know some of you may be struggling with some of this. And some of you, it may cause some fear for you. And I want you to see that you're in good company because Daniel was disturbed by some of the things that God showed him. And he was trembling in fear. And he, he wasn't quite sure how things were going to transpire and didn't quite understand. But what I really want to show you is the tenderness of God for the believer and that this isn't meant to cause fear in you. It's to cause you to be prepared, but certainly never to be panicked. It's not meant to scare you. By the way, I love the story that Chuck Swindoll tells about a a, a young man who this issue of study of last times, it caused a great deal of fear for him. And, And he had been studying it a lot. He became quite obsessed with it. He specifically became obsessed with the uh, rapture of the church, which what that is, is we'll talk about, is the snatching away of the church, where the church, uh, is Jesus Christ, takes the church out of this world uh, in an instant. But this young man was a student at a small Christian college, probably like Howard Payne University, where Hope and I went, uh, down in Brownwood, Texas. And as he was studying the subject of eschatology and future things, he was obsessed with it, and he just, he was fearful about it, and he was afraid that maybe he was not going to be taken, all right? And and as he studied the rapture, he was really disturbed. He was born again, but he had this deep-seated fear, for whatever reason, that he was going to be left behind. So all the other students and a lot of his friends knew this about him, so they decided to all get together, conspire together, and they simulated a rapture event on the college campus. It was very well planned among the student body. Even the faculty got in on this simulated rapture event. He took a nap, as was his habit in the afternoon, and when he fell asleep, his roommates gave everybody the cue, and they all quietly left the campus. Everybody. Everyone left the campus. The cooks in the kitchen were in on it, and they left the fire on underneath some things that were cooking. The teachers left their desks cluttered with books and papers. Roommates left left faucets that were running and clothes that were scattered all over the floor. It was just exactly as he had thought it might happen and he might get left behind. Then they enlisted a trumpeteer from the band who got up in the tower at the highest point and he blasted a note on a speaker system that carried all throughout the campus, could be heard everywhere, and it awakened the slumbering student. He he got up, he realized that everybody was gone, he frantically began to run through the hallways and the dormitory, and then he ran downstairs, and he was disturbed, not because they were all gone, he was disturbed because he was left. And after a while, in their mercy, they began to trickle back onto campus, and that my friends, is the punking of all punkings right there, right? That took some serious planning and coordination. But again, confusion about these things and uncertainty about the status of your relationship with Christ is one of the reasons that people begin to get fearful. And they start getting scared when you start talking about these things. And I just want to reiterate, if you're a believer, this should not scare you. This should encourage you. But I want you to see the tenderness that God has for Daniel as Daniel was fearful about some of these things that God was showing him. He was fearful about what was going to happen to his people, the Jews. He was definitely fearful about how some of these things were going to transpire in the end times that God was showing him. 
But look at what God's response is to Daniel in chapter 10. This is what it says. In the third year of the reign of King Cyrus of Persia, Daniel, who was also known as Belteshazzar, remember that was his Babylonian name that Nebuchadnezzar gave him, he had another vision. And he understood that the vision concerned events that were certain to happen in the future. So prophetic type things, right? There, there would be times of war and times of great hardship. Now, if you keep reading, we won't have time to look at every verse here. But if you keep reading, it says that he was really disturbed by this. He enters into a time of fasting. He enters into a time of prayer. And it says on verse 4, on April 23rd, as I was standing on the bank of the great Tigris River, he says, I looked and I saw a man that was dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning, and his eyes flamed like torches. His arms and his feet shone like polished bronze, and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. If you were to look in Revelation chapter 1, you would see that there's a great similarity in this description of this one that Daniel is describing, and it's Jesus Christ that is being described in Revelation chapter 1 as John encountered him. Verse 7, skipping ahead, only I, Daniel, saw this vision. The men with me saw nothing, but they were suddenly terrified, and they ran away to hide. So I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me. My face grew deathly pale. I felt very weak. And then I heard the man speak. And when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted and I lay there with my face to the ground. So part of this trembling, you should know, is also just the awesomeness of God that he is blown away by. If you read the book of Isaiah and you look at chapter 6, you'll see that Isaiah had a similar type experience just based upon how awesome God is. Just then, though, look at verse 10. Just then a hand touched me and lifted me, still trembling to my hands and my knees. He was fully on his face before God. He had even passed out. He was in such fear. And then the man said to me, Daniel, and I love this part, you are very precious to God. You are precious to God. So listen carefully to what I have to say to you. Stand up, for I have been sent to you. When he said this to me, I stood up, still trembling. And then he said, and I want you to say it with me, what did he say to Daniel? And he says it to us today. Don't be what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, beloved. Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your requests has been heard in heaven. So God was with him the entire time. Do you see that? Even when it seemed like things were spinning out of control, God was with him. I have come in to answer your prayer. Now Daniel continues to be fearful and he's disturbed, maybe like some of you have felt whenever we've talked about some of this, but look how, how God is with him, how the angel of the Lord, the messenger begins to encourage him again. Then the one who looked like a man touched me again and I felt my strength returning. And look at what he says again. Say it with me. Don't be afraid. Say it again with me. Don't be afraid, he said. For you, again, another reminder, are very precious to God. And then he's going to tell him these things that he wants him to have. Peace. Do you know you need to have peace in this world that's messed up right now? The world around us needs believers that are filled with peace. Wouldn't you agree? Right? 
Not ones that are just just so overwhelmed with fear and anxiety, but believers who are filled with peace. And then he says this, and this is also a command, be encouraged. And then he says this, and we need to hear this too, be strong. But you know what really stands out to me in that passage? Daniel, you are precious to God. And I want to just ask you this. Do you realize, believer, how precious you are to God? And if you're not a believer, I want you to hear this. Do you realize how precious you are to God? You are precious to him. Scripture says in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that even while we were yet sinners, God proved his love to us. He proved it for us that even while we were sinners, Christ still died for us. Why? Because you're precious to him. Because you matter to him. And believer, you are precious to God with what you're going through. Uh, you're, you may feel like you're not, but you are. He tells us you are precious to him. This part of this great book reminds us this, if you're taking notes, that God wants you, when you're talking about in things, last times, God wants you prepared. He wants you to be prepared, but he doesn't want you to live in fear, anxiety, and panic, especially whenever talking about these things. Now, in the remainder of our time, what I want to do is I want to help us with just a refresher. For some of you, you know this, but, but I want to give you a bit of a refresher of some of the sequence of events that Paul begins to speak about whenever it speaks of the return of Christ. Because again, one of the reasons that many people get fearful is they don't understand And they don't understand what the sequence is. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what is going to happen to us if we die prior to that time. And so all of that speculation many times leaves people fearful. And they just don't understand. And so so God has laid this out for us. And what we've learned is this, is yes, there is a terrible time of tribulation that is coming. There is a treacherous leader we talked about last week who will emerge during that time. But do we need to be afraid of that. And I believe the Bible speaks of a key event that in the last days that millions of people who are believers will be extracted in an instant. Whether that happens in what we call, that is called premillennialism, okay, and that is the approach from which we teach here, all right, uh, and that is, and, and there are two ways of viewing that rapture of the church, actually there's three, but we'll focus on two. One is called a pre-tribulational rapture, which means that it happens prior to that seven-year period, and one is called a post-tribulational rapture. There's also one that is a mid-tribulational, but we don't have time to get into that today. Okay, so I just want you to understand that this premillennial viewpoint is, I'm not an astute scholar uh, and and an astute theological scholar, but I want you to know that there are many solid, faithful men and women of God who also hold this premillennial view from guys like Chuck Swindoll, Charles Stanley, John MacArthur, Jack Graham, Robert Jeffress, Tony Evans, K. Arthur, who is a, a fantastic Bible teacher, Billy Graham, David Jeremiah, Tommy Nelson, John Piper. These guys are all, they would all be in this camp of a premillennial view. Now, they may not agree on all the details that happen within that, but they, they are, these guys are a lot smarter than I am. And I just want you to know, I don't hold this view because they hold this view. I hold this view because I search the scriptures for myself. And here's the thing I will always encourage you to do. Don't believe this just because I'm telling you to believe this. You need to check this out for yourself. 
You need to come to the conclusion about this for yourself, okay? And I know, again, that there are some godly people who might have a different view about that, and that is okay. The one thing that we can certainly agree upon is that Jesus Christ is returning for his church someday in the future. But I want to take you to a diagram, okay, quickly, just to help you understand biblically a sequence that Paul kind of lays out for us, and that is laid out, especially in the New Testament, and Daniel kind of supplements this as well, of how things kind of go down. First, you have the first coming of Christ. Daniel would have happened before this. This is when Jesus Christ came. It's called his first advent. Jesus came, and he lived a perfect life. He came to save the world. He came to, to die for us who are Sinners. He went to the cross willingly, died on that cross, was buried for three days, was raised from the dead. Amen, right? And after that, he uh, spent some time with his disciples, discipling them further. And then, and then he ascended back to heaven, but he told them, I am coming again for you. All right? And so now the church was established and we are in this age of the church. And that's right where we are right now. Now, the next sequence would be, depending upon what your view would be, would be this pre-tribulational rapture, if that is your view, and that would happen prior to this seven-year tribulation that will happen on earth, and we talked about that more last week. Now, if your view is not a pre-trib rapture, then that would be a post-trib rapture with the understanding that those who are believers would go through, who are alive at the time, would go through that seven-year tribulation on earth, and then a post-trib rapture would happen, uh, and which would precipitate what would be called the second coming of Jesus Christ, where he returns not as Savior, he returns as Judge. Okay, I want to be clear that there is a distinction between the rapture and the return of Jesus Christ. But most premillennialists will agree that there is a rapture. There's just some disagreement on where that will happen. Okay, I have a tendency to lean more towards the first, but I'm not so dogmatic and I won't fight with anybody about if it happens at the end. And I'm going to share a quote with you about that here in just a minute. Next, what will happen is that Jesus Christ, after his return, will set up, and this is spoken about in the book of Revelation, what is called the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Uh, At that point, Satan will be bound at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom here on this earth where Jesus will restore this earth, right? Uh, During that period, Satan will be bound. He will be loosed for a time at the end of that thousand years. And then once and for all, Jesus, by his word, will take Satan and he will throw him in the lake of fire for all eternity, never to be heard of again. Amen, right? And at that point, Jesus will set up what is called the new heavens and the new earth, and there will be, there will be eternity future. That's called eternity future. So when Christ comes, he will carry out some promises that he has made to us as believers. And I just very quickly want to give you some of these promises to encourage you today, to help you be encouraged. As you begin to understand this, it should encourage you. Jesus' disciples were in despair. They were discouraged as he was telling them he was going to leave them and go and die for them. And they were discouraged. They thought things weren't working out the way that they thought it was going to work out. And Jesus told him this. He said in John chapter 14, verse 1, he said, don't let your hearts be, what does it say, church? Troubled. 
Now he's going to tell them what to do, and this is the whole theme also of the book of Daniel. In fact, it's a theme for us as believers throughout the entirety of the Bible. Here's what he tells us to do. Trust in God. That's very direct what Jesus says. Don't be discouraged. Trust in God. For some of you, that may be the only thing you needed to hear all day today. As you're going through something really challenging, you need to hear, don't be discouraged. Trust in God. God's got this. Trust in God. And trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? So he's made a promise to you, believer, to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, what did he promise? Look, I will come and get you. He said he's coming for you. Live with that in your heart. You see, I think we get so consumed with what's going on in the day-to-day that most of us as believers, if we're honest, we haven't thought about that in a long time, right? But he says, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. The Apostle Paul was dealing with another group of believers who were, they were in despair because they had been hearing about the return of Christ. This was in Thessalonica, a place where Paul planted a church. And he taught them about the return of Christ, that Jesus was coming for them. But they were troubled. Uh, They were anticipating that it would happen in their lifetime, as we should as well. That's how the Lord wants us to live is with that anticipation, right? Not with a procrastination, but with anticipation. And Paul had taught them Jesus is coming back. But some of their loved ones had died. And so they were afraid that their loved ones who had died, were they were panicked about this. Were they going to miss the return of Christ and who had, those who had preceded them in death? And they were thinking, if, if Jesus returns and we meet the, him in the air to go to heaven with him, our loved ones have died and they're, they're going to be here left in their graves. What about them? So in this letter, and this will be an encouragement to those of you who have lost A loved one who is in Jesus Christ. How many of you have lost a loved one that knew Jesus as their Savior? This will encourage you. This, And you'll see, it was given to encourage you. So in the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is dealing with them. And he gives them a detailed chronological explanation. He answers burning practical questions that they were struggling with. And so I want you to see, he's going to talk about what happens to us when we die. For those who are believers, what happens? And again, he does this because he's trying to, number one, he's trying to dispel the believer's ignorance, the ignorance that they had about this. This wasn't to insult them, but the ignorance, they didn't understand what was going to happen. This ignorance was causing fear. You see that? When we don't understand, it causes fear. And he's going to dispel that. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, I'm reading this in the ESV. Uh, It's a better, closer translation here, and I don't want to miss a key word. We do not want you to be uninformed. Once again, it's my job as your pastor to be sure you are not, that you are, that you are informed. You are not uninformed. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. So he's speaking to believers about those who are, what's the word, church? Asleep. Is it just those who are just kind of taking a nap? What's he talking about here? Right? Is he talking about some of you that are sleeping this morning? What's he talking about, right? 
We don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. Many of them did not understand this. They were discouraged. They were fearful. They didn't get this. He wanted them to be encouraged. He wants you to be encouraged. He wanted Daniel to be encouraged. And when you get this, it gives you a perspective that brings peace. And so this is called our blessed hope. Secondly, Paul is going to describe then the believer's death. And he's going to talk about this. Let me just do it real quick. This is a little aside in the message, but it's so powerful for us today. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are, and say the word with me again, those who are asleep. Now, some of your translations may say those who have died. The reason I'm using ESV today is because it's so, it's so much closer. The word in the Greek is this, this word koimao, and it literally means to sleep or to sleep in death. Paul was using this metaphor of sleep for a reason. What you'll find is this word, whenever it's describing a believer's death, is used many times in the New Testament. It's a common term. The word sleep is a common term that is associated with a believer that has died. In fact, look at John, just really quick, chapter 11. Listen to how Jesus describes Lazarus who had what? Died. Then he said, our friend Lazarus had fallen, what does it say? Asleep. But now I will go and wake him up. He was going to go and what? Raise Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus wasn't taking a nap, folks. He had died. You could call it a dirt nap if you want to, okay? But he had died. In fact, the scripture says that he was in there for four days. And they said, surely by now he stinks. Okay, and that wasn't just because he hadn't had a shower. In fact, in the King James, it says, Surely he stinketh by now, and you know you smell when you stinketh. Okay? That's like when kids come in from outside, man, they stinketh, don't they? Something about that. Seriously, the main truth here is, is that just when we, go, when we go to a sleep, we expect an awaken, uh, to awaken and to arise. So as believers, listen, believer, if you're to die before that time of the return of Christ, you can know that this is what's going to happen to you. If you die before that time of the rapture of the church, when a believer dies, if you've had a loved one who is a believer in Jesus who has died, you can know this, that his physical or her physical body lies dormant in a dormant state, but the scripture says that their spirit, his soul, is immediately in the presence of Jesus. That's why Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in, what did he call it? paradise. So those of you who have lost loved ones who are in Jesus Christ, their soul is in the presence of Jesus Christ. Now at that time of the rapture, what scripture teaches, and 1 Corinthians teaches this, Paul teaches this in 1 Thessalonians, that at the time of that rapture, whether it's pre or post, that those who have gone ahead of us, their spirit will return with Jesus and their body will be reunited with their spirit. They will have a glorified body. I don't know how Jesus does this. That's why he's God and I'm not. But he does. And in fact, then they will, and if we are still alive during that time, we will be given a glorified body. These bodies that we have that are marred by sin, that are falling apart, that get sick, 
they will not be with us anymore. Amen, right? Aren't you glad to know that? That's incredible. So if you have a loved one who was a believer who died, you can take comfort in knowing that their spirit is in the presence of the Lord right now. They are not in something that some call soul sleep. That is not what Scripture is saying here. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You don't go into soul sleep. You don't cease to exist. You are with Jesus in paradise. So if you've lost someone, you can take hope in that. My brother-in-law who died of cancer when he was 40 years old a few years back, his spirit is in the presence of Jesus right now. And one day when Jesus returns, he will be given a brand new body. Do you see what that does for us? It gives us hope, right? It reminds us this isn't all that there is. So here's what Paul is doing. He's restoring the believer's hope. He's restoring the believer's hope. Those who had lost those loved ones, maybe you've lost loved ones that are in Christ and you feel hopeless. Here's what he's saying. You should grieve, but you grieve differently. Look what he says. You may not grieve. I'm telling you these things that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see, if you don't have Jesus Christ and those loved ones around you don't have Jesus Christ, Paul is shooting straight here. There is no hope apart from Christ. And I don't say that in any kind of way with any any joy in my heart. And sometimes we think that pastors like to say that or whatever. That breaks my heart. What that tells me is I have an urgency to be sure that we as a church are, are telling people about Jesus Christ. Amen? That we're planting more churches. That we're going forward till Jesus returns. We can't stop, church. We've got to be driven to let people know that Jesus came for them in grace and he loves them and he wants to give them eternal life. But here's what it says. Since we believe that Jesus died and he rose again, even so through Jesus, what he's saying is is if Jesus can do that with himself, is it anything to think that it would be too great for him to do that with us? God will bring with him those who have, there it is again, fallen what? Asleep. He uses that word, Again, what he's saying essentially, I'm going to wrap this up, is that Jesus, by his resurrection, and Paul echoes this, has removed the sting of death for the believer. Amen, right? You don't have to even fear death. You don't even have to fear death. If you've lost a loved one, yes, you will grieve. We still grieve the loss of my brother-in-law. And it's six and a half years since then. We still grieve that. But you see, here's the difference. I grieve and my family grieves. We grieve with hope. We grieve with hope because Jesus removed the sting of death. And here's what I want you to see just very quickly. He goes on and he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. So this isn't just Paul's opinion. He says this is a word from God that we who are alive, if we are still alive during that time of the return of Christ or the rapture of Christ, we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, 
will not precede those, that means we won't go first if we're still alive, those who have fallen asleep. He uses it again. Paul comes along and he's saying, you don't have to worry about those who have already died who are in me. He said, they will get to, their bodies will get to go first. You say, well, why do they get to go first? And I heard one guy say this because they're six feet under and six feet further away. Okay, I don't know if that's the reason. But that's just the way God said it is. And so we just accept that. Paul then gives this promise. And I want you to see just kind of the, the order of this. He begins to give an, an order. And this isn't just stale, staunchy, churchy doctrine. This is a reality for you to take into your heart and to know. And when you begin to get this, it changes the way that we respond and the way that we live our lives today. Which, by the way, my role as a pastor is not just to give you a bunch of information. My role is to give you information that brings transformation. Amen, right? It changes the way that you live. So look at Paul's just order of events just quickly. There will be a return for the believers. Verse 16. For the Lord himself. He's not sending an angel to do this. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command. With the voice of an archangel. And when the sound of the trumpet of God in that rapture, it's the Lord Jesus himself that is coming back. He's not sending his angels. He's, sending, he's not sending someone in his place. It's a personal return of Jesus. And the Bible says this, just as he left and he ascended to heaven, he's coming back, folks. And we got to get that in our minds. And so look at what's going to happen. There will be a, ret a return for the saints. There will be a resurrection. And the dead in Christ, those are key words, in Christ, will rise First, now this is not a resurrection of all the dead. This is not a resurrection of all the dead. Those who are dead who are not in Jesus Christ, they will continue to lie in that dormant, uh, their physical bodies will lie in that dormant state. Their spirit is in what is called Hades or hell, okay? All right, so their spirit does the opposite. Instead of going and being in the presence of the Lord, they are separated from God. Gehenna, whatever you want to call that there. So this isn't the resurrection of all dead. So there will be a resurrection. Then there will be a rapture. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. These words caught up is where this word, now you need to know the word rapture is not in the original text here, but it, it, it's a, a Latin word, rapturo. It means to be snatched away, but the Greek word that's used here is called harpazo, and harpazo means to forcefully be taken away. So the concept is there, the word might not be there, right? Okay, this word rapture. By the way, Trinity is not in there as well, but we understand that and we accept that. And it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. You say, how fast is that? All right, look at my eye. Did you see that? That was a twinkle, just like that, okay? You saw that twinkle in my eye, right? All right, so listen, Paul even talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. We shall not all, there's the word again, what does it say? Sleep. You see, he's using that word for a reason because it's a temporary state. You see that? It's a temporary state. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be, what does it say? Changed. Wouldn't that be a great verse to put above our nursery in our church? We shall not all sleep, but we shall be all changed. That'd be perfect, wouldn't it? <laughs> for the babies. Very quickly. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, 
at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. They get that glorified body like Jesus had. We get that glorified body. It's a translation into that glorified body. Our salvation, which is in three parts, will be complete. It'll now be complete. There's justification, sanctification, glorification. Glorification has not happened for us yet. It will one day. Paul tells us there's going to be a return, a resurrection, a rapture, And now if you've lost a loved one in Christ, you're going to love this. There will be a reunion. Amen? There will be a reunion. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. There's going to be three meetings. The bodies of those who have died who are in Jesus Christ. Those who are alive and remain will be reunited with all of our loved ones who have gone before us. And then the greatest reunion is going to be that we are going to be reunited with Jesus Christ to live with him forever. Forever. And then here's the last verse, and I want you to see. Why did he give us all of this information? Look at what he says. Here's the last thing, and I want you to read it with me out loud. Say it with me. Therefore, that connects it. Therefore, say it with me. Encourage one another with these words. Don't neglect it encourage one another right with Jesus there is hope you can sing when my brother's keeper sings I'll fly away you can sing it and you can mean it and know it when you've placed your faith in Jesus now again just real quick some believers again as I said believe maybe that rapture happens at the end of that tribulation period some believe it happens before I'm not going to argue that with people I lean towards the first part but here is what I will say if I'm living during the time of the tribulation and and I'm wrong about it happening prior to and I have to go through that time of tribulation then here is what we say as a church we will all gladly suffer for Jesus Christ during that time amen just as believers do all over this world right now We don't preach an escapism from suffering. This world is a hard world. But here's the deal. We will, we will be rescued by Jesus. There is a return of Jesus Christ. I love what Charles Ryrie said. And his approach, he has a tendency, again, to lean towards a pre-tribulational viewpoint. But here's what he says. Does it really make any difference when the Lord will come? Is it not his coming that is important? If his coming should be pre-tribulational then we will praise him for the fact that we missed that terrible time. If it is post-tribulational, then we will gladly suffer for his sake. Either way, we still have the blessed hope of his coming. Amen? So I want to invite us to prayer. Let's pray together. Folks, Jesus Christ is coming again. And if that causes any amount of fear or trepidation in your heart, My question would be is, have you settled that matter of placing your faith in Jesus Christ? He has come and you are still living in this age of grace where he is extending this free gift of salvation to all who will believe and receive him. So have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? He came to save you today.
You might just place your faith in Jesus right now. You don't have to walk down this aisle. You don't have to, you don't have to do anything special, raise your hand. or Right where you're seated, you get alone with Jesus right now. And you just say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah. And I place my faith in you. I am a sinner and I need your grace and your salvation I place my faith in you, Jesus. I believe you are the one who can give me eternal life. Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. So now, Jesus, will you be my Savior? And I want to follow you in this life. And Scripture says, if you mean that, and you're placing your faith in Jesus, that you, you have begun that process of salvation, that you are sealed in Jesus Christ. Are you a believer? Are you living like Paul told us in the book of Titus to be prepared, to be faithful, longing for his appearing? If not, are you struggling right now? Be encouraged today. If he can handle all of that, he can handle what you're dealing with today. If you're fearful today, he's putting his hand on your shoulder and he's telling you, you are precious to me. Don't be afraid. In fact, what he's telling you, believer, I need you to be strong in this world that is so messed up. I need you to be at peace in this world that is anxious. I need you to have roots that go deep into me so that when the storms are just blowing fiercely, you are the stable one in your community. Lord, we thank you for this powerful word and reminder that you are coming again. Would you help us to live engaged in our culture with balance? But Lord, also with an eye towards knowing that you could come at any moment. And we are ready for you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.